0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we have a very exciting and interesting conversation for you because we're really talking about life insurance, which you hear often on the Money Advantage podcast. We're bringing it in to a different context from a different perspective and really helping you understand how it fits into a retirement plan and makes everything better. So what I want to start with is by sharing, we have Dr. Wade Fow joining us for a second time on the Money Advantage podcast to unpack this wonderfully. Dr. Wade, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me back on the show.
1: Let me read just a little bit of Dr. Wade's bio for you so that you can get some context for who he is and why his, not just his opinion or his perspective, but his research matters and really is substantiated. So I want to share that with you first. So Wade D. Fow PhD, is a CFA and RICP He's the program director of the Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation and a professor of retirement income at the American College of Financial Services in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, as well as a co-director of the college's Center for Retirement Income. So as well, he's a principal and director for McLean Asset Management and RISA, is that how you pronounce it? R-I-S-A? LLC. RISA, uh-huh. Risa yeah. <laughs> LLC. He holds a doctorate in economics from Princeton University, and he's published more than 60, with a six-zero 0 peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed research articles in a wide variety of academic and practitioner journals. He hosts the Retirement Researcher website, so you can find him there at retirementresearcher.com, and he's a contributor to not only Forbes, and advisor perspectives, but also the Journal of Financial Planning, and in, he's been an expert panelist for the Wall Street Journal. Wade's newest book is Retirement Planning Guidebook, Navigating the Important Decisions for Retirement Success. So what you can hear from that is tremendous background of knowledge, very learned, and very well-published, and very... Um, there's a word I'm looking for, but very substantial in this field of retirement planning. And yet we're talking about life insurance and how that fits in retirement planning. So this is really a conversation to listen up to, specifically because I, we hear this sentiment all the time. You know, I need life insurance until I retire, and then I don't have a need for life insurance anymore. My, my house is paid off. My kids have been through college. I've already handled that. I don't have a life insurance need. And today, what we're going to do is really show you how life insurance can be a crucial and key component in a retirement strategy that's more effective because it creates more retirement income and it gives you tremendous um, value and advantages in creating a legacy as well. So, we're going to unpack that today. But Bruce, just before we jump into that, can you share from your perspective? I know you've known Dr. Wade for quite a while. Can you share from your perspective the value of why someone should really listen in today?
3: Well, I think uh, the word you were looking for is credibility. Yes. Um, and Dr. Wade brings that from all his research. You know, um, Dr. Wade would probably agree with me. You know, When you, when you work with certain analytical people uh, in our industry, they need that research to reassure them. And uh, that's why I love to use his white papers. Dr. White, I was just at a Jackson National Life uh, uh, lunch yesterday, and they were actually uh, talking about some of your research at the lunch. So I think and that's here in St. Louis. So I, I, he is very well respected throughout the retirement planning community. And the reason he's well respected is because, is because of his research. And I think that's very comforting to a lot of people. Now, we don't espouse. We try to actually get people to, to work longer. You know, because yes. we think we, we we want people to get into a, a life where they are in a business or they're in a career that they, they love and they, they continue to flourish and so on and so forth. And that actually helps retirement planning. I'm sure Dr. Wade would, I mean, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. The shorter your time period for <laughs> retirement, the, lo- the easier and more likely you're going to have a good retirement. <clears throat> but um, Dr. Wade, I think one of the things that I'd like for you to To kind of kick off here today is the current economic situation here in 2022 in the spring of 2022, going into summer, and what are some of the things that people should consider? And I'm specifically talking about one of the things in your white paper, one of the things that we espouse and you do too, is sequence of return risk and how a volatility buffer of cash sitting somewhere can actually help in these kind of times and how that plays into the success of retirement planning.
2: Sure, sure. And, and first, just wait is fine. You don't have to say Dr. Wade, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what makes retirement income different is the, the nature of risk changes. And so that's, I'm not from the insurance world. I have my background more on the investment side. That's what that CFA is about, like investment management. Uh, but just in looking at how the investment world approached retirement income, I developed concerns and, and we're really seeing that right now. And so, so much of my research focus has then just been on how to think about retirement risk and how tools that conventionally are not considered, like we were, like the discussion of this idea, you don't need life insurance after you retire, uh, Just, but in the risk management context of retirement, how potentially looking at different tools, not just using only an investment portfolio to fund retirement expenses can help lay that foundation for a better retirement outcome. And so that idea of the buffer asset is, I mean, right now with what's going on in the markets, interest rates were at historic lows. They're coming up. That's leading to losses if people own bond mutual funds and are having to sell shares to fund expenses. At the same time, the stock market Uh, The S&P 500 is down about 16% right now from the start of the year. Uh, That's leading to issues where people have to sell their stock mutual funds to fund retirement expenses. They'll be selling that at a loss. Inflation has picked up again, and that was the saving grace. I've been worried for a long time about kind of high stock market valuations, low interest rates, but at least inflation was low. And so that was helping the retiree not have to spend more in retirement. Now, as inflation has gotten higher as well, and the, the old 2% long-term inflation assumption may no longer apply, that's creating strain. And so the idea of the volatility buffer is with permanent life insurance, like with the whole life insurance type of an approach, where the cash value does not, it's not exposed to the risk of loss in the same way that bonds are when interest rates rise or that stocks always are, (laughs) it can provide a resource to cover spending on a temporary basis during this kind of bad market environment, so that you don't have to sell from the portfolio to fund spending. And ultimately for those who generally have comfort with an investment-based approach, not having to sell from the portfolio at a loss, you, you then feel more comfortable. Well, then that gives the portfolio an opportunity to recover and to make up those losses again before we have to go back to selling from it. And so the synergy you get from protecting the investment portfolio, ultimately that's what my simulations are trying to understand is ultimately the benefits to the portfolio exceed the costs of the insurance to give a, a better net outcome, especially when we consider the tax advantages and so forth of life insurance, to get a better outcome for that financial plan in retirement. That, that's the basic concept.
1: I was going to say, can you take us back to you came from the investment planning side with a focus on retirement planning? You said you started seeing some concerns. Can you just kind of outline what some of those concerns were? I know you um, wove them through the um, history that you just shared and kind of your, your lay of the land. But let's kind of work a little more chronologically. What concerns were you beginning to see in the retirement planning space that were causing challenges or risk for the person who's doing the financial planning.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so in the investments world, really the, the approach to retirement started with research that Bill Bengen published in 1994 that gave us what we know today as the 4% rule or the 4% guideline for retirement spending, which was if I plan for a 30-year retirement and I have a portfolio of 50 to 75% stocks, drawing 4% at retirement, and then increasing that spending with inflation subsequently should be safe. I shouldn't have to worry about outliving my assets with that diversified investment portfolio. The first kind of research study I did in the area of financial planning was, I had a, a data set with 20 different countries' market returns, including the US, 20 developed market countries, And I was just curious, did this idea of a 4% rule work with other countries' data? Mm. And the answer is it it really didn't. Going back to 1900, we could say it it worked in the U.S. and Canada, but not in the other 18 countries in the data set. And if you put all the international data together around the world, the the 4% rule, even though it's like we say 100% success in the U.S., it's about a 68% success rate around the world, putting all that international data together. And if you wanted a withdrawal rate that could have worked at least 90% of the time around the world, you had to go all the way down to 2.8%. So that was my introduction to this idea that, and, and this then gets into a philosophical debate of should today's retirees focus only on US market data because we live in the US, or should we consider the 20th century US was a pretty remarkable century in world history And maybe looking forward from today, is it relevant to consider what's a more typical international experience with market returns? Mm -hmm. And I thought you should consider the international experience, but people would argue, I mean, this is ultimately, we don't know what the markets will do in the future. So what's the relevant kind of framework to think about it? Some people would push push back on that and just say, well, we're in the US, who cares about the other data? But anyway, that just opened up this whole issue of uh, when we say the 4% rule worked, it's based on interest rates at the starts of retirement. And we can only make that determination now up to 1992, because you need 30 years of data to say the 4% rule worked. Well, interest rates have been, lo- they're, they're coming up now, but they've been lower than they ever were in the historical data, where we could say that the 4% rule worked from that starting point. As well, stock market valuations have been higher than they ever were in this historical data, which... with interest rates, it's not controversial. Low bond yields means low bond returns. With stocks, there is more controversy. High valuations historically have suggested we should expect lower stock returns in the future. Now that's not at all a perfect relationship, but at least if we're trying to plan a conservative strategy and we're worried about outliving our money and we want something that should be effective for our retirement, I just think that that 4% rule is under a lot more strain for today's retirees than the mm. historical data based simply on looking at US historical market returns would suggest.
1: Well, and you say the potential of outliving our money. I mean, you're saying it in a way that sounds very non-threatening, but what does that actually mean if the financial plan doesn't work and if you outlive your money? I mean, what is the actual experience for that person who Worked out in a 90% case, well, their money's run out, right? They're, they still have life to live and their money's gone. I mean, that's, that's not a reliable situation that you want to say, I feel really good about my financial strategy, right?
2: Right. And it's so the 4% rule is artificial in the sense that no one would strictly follow that. When it looks like you're going to run out of money, you're probably going to start cutting back before that happens. It's like if you're starting to worry, you're going to run out of gas when you're driving through the desert, even though you may still have a, a couple of gallons left, you might not feel very good at that point. And so you're gonna push back and you're just gonna be spending less and less. You're not gonna be able to enjoy the the retirement budget you had planned for in that circumstance. You'll still have your social security benefit, of course. And if you have a few people still have the traditional defined benefit pension, not many people will have that anymore, but at least they'll have social security and if they did have any other protected lifetime income sources. But otherwise, as they're relying on distributions from their investment portfolio to fund their retirement spending, as that portfolio starts to decline in value, I think people just ultimately are gonna feel a lot less comfortable about enjoying the full lifestyle that they may have had in mind for their retirement.
3: And so this brings brings up something else that I've known you've you've written about and talked about is uh, it may be very advantageous to actually use insurance companies that are really good at uh, risk evaluation to also fund a portion of your cash flow in the form of an uh, income based annuity going forward, because that ups your success level also. So can you uh, talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, you can think about three basic ways to fund retirement spending. The first is just with bonds. And that's the least effective way because bonds, you can kind of, based on the age that you want to plan to live to, or not that you want, but based on your planning (laughs) horizon. If I'm worried about outliving my money, we kind of get into this debate of how long should I plan for that retirement to last? And with bonds, well, I can figure out if I'm going to plan a 95, here's how much I can spend every year, for example. Now, there's two ways to potentially spend more than that. The first is the investment strategy, the the diversified investment portfolio that, again, Bill Bengen in the Wall Street Journal recently said he's now only 20% stocks because Mm. he's violating the assumptions behind his strategy because he's nervous about the market, which is a whole nother (laughs) issue. The 4% rule assumes you stick to the strategy. But the strategy is you invest heavily in stocks to rely on this idea that, there's a risk premium that stocks will outperform bonds over time and that will allow you to spend more than bonds alone. And then the third approach is an annuity-based approach of risk pooling where it's the insurance company is going to invest those funds basically in a bond portfolio. But for me, if I'm worried I might live to 95 and I'm gonna fund my retirement with bonds, I have to set aside the full, the the present value of what that payment or what that budget is at age 95. So if I want to spend hundred thousand dollars at age 95, well, I can account for the funds, uh, account for the fact that bonds will grow with interest. So I may only have to set aside a portion of that, but I have to set aside the full spending value at age 95. Whereas an insurance company has a, a lot of customers and they don't know which customers will live to age 95 but they will know that as a whole or on average about 20% of their customers say will live to age 95 and so they don't have to set aside as much to cover those age 95 payments and because of that they can allow for a higher level of spending than bonds could support for anyone who's worried they might live longer than their life expectancy which is the age where you know there's a 50% chance You live longer than that, so you can't really plan on your life expectancy. Anyone worried about living beyond that, the annuity will allow them to spend more than bonds will. And then the question just becomes, well, what's a better way to to try to fund retirement? To rely on the risk premium from the stock market to fund more than bonds, or to rely on risk pooling through insurance to fund more than bonds? And ultimately, they're both viable approaches. This is what the, the RISA is, the Retirement Income Style Awareness. This idea of how do people, like, what's their retirement personality? Are they comfortable with the markets or they, do they prefer some sort of contractual protection? Ultimately, they're both viable approaches and it depends on, on what just people's preferences are between them. But the important point is, I think in the investments world, there's this notion that it's very easy for stocks to do so well that they just blow away the value of an annuity. And the reality is that's not the case, that this risk pooling that insurance can provide allows for a lot more spending than bonds in a way that's competitive with the stock market. I mean, if the stock market does very well, it would outperform the annuity. But if if the stock market does average, then the annuity is going to be right alongside it in terms of the ability to fund a spending goal over a long retirement horizon. So that's where people have options about how they want to think about building a retirement income plan and what kind of approach makes them feel more comfortable. And anyone who's nervous about the stock market may not be comfortable using, as Bill Bengen, the founder of the 4% rule, has demonstrated, may not be comfortable keeping this high stock allocation throughout retirement as required by the assumptions to make that strategy work.
1: Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, I think you said uh, a little tongue-in-cheek almost that um, people are a little bit nervous about the market, but let's talk about that. What about the person who said, you know, I need higher returns, so I'm willing to trust the market, and now the market is not only not going up, but potentially losing or going down in value. I mean, how does that impact your ultimate outcome? Not just the potential for loss but this the risk that you're taking to not to hope that you're going to end up in the right spot because you're taking on the risk and the hopefully higher returns but what is the impact to a person as they're having that that concern that they're not going to end up where they want to even though they took on the higher risk to get the better return in the stock market
2: mm-hmm. yeah it's all it's a matter of can can people sleep comfortably at night with the market volatility. And I think we've got a lot of tests about this recently, like with the pandemic in spring of 2020, how worried were you about that market downturn? (laughs) The market lost a lot, but this characteristic of US historical data that doesn't show up as frequently around the world is, we've always kind of, I don't know if it's luck or what, but when markets go down, they've quickly come back up. And if you're somehow comfortable keeping that in mind. So like right now you're not panicking because you're comfortable. Okay. The market is down 16%, but it will come back up. And and historically we've seen a lot of years where the market may be down this much in the spring, but still ended up the year much higher. I'm not to, who knows what's going to happen, but if you're comfortable thinking along those lines, then maybe you can get through this type of market environment and be okay. But if this is causing you to panic and abandon the strategy, of if you're using this investments type strategy, then that could leave you much further behind. And, and sequ- it's, investment volatility has a bigger impact after people are retired, because it's, if you're having to sell from a declining portfolio, there's less left in the portfolio to recover. And so it becomes a lot harder for the portfolio to recover. And that 4% rule, it was a, a research simplification, but it actually creates the most sequence risk because it's telling you to invest aggressively, to never vary your spending. And so if the market's down, you kind of dig a hole for the portfolio, you're selling a higher and higher percentage of what's left that the portfolio doesn't get to recover. But that's where, like back to this idea of a volatility buffer, there's various ways to manage sequence of returns risks, but the four basic approaches just spend less, which is the logic of the 4% rule. It's there's no guarantee behind it but that's the idea there's you can just be flexible with your spending if i can temporarily cut my expenses during a market downturn that helps there's different kind of volatility based annuities bucketing approaches and so forth and then there's the, this idea of a buffer asset which is just something outside the portfolio not correlated with the portfolio and so the idea is an asset that's not going to lose value when the overall market is down that can provide that bridge to, okay, instead of selling from my portfolio when it's down, I'll instead cover my spending through this buffer, volatility buffer asset outside of my portfolio, give my portfolio a chance to recover. And then that's another potential way to manage this type of risk.
1: And then how do you see the the idea of inflation impacting that as well? I mean, I think often we leave off that notion that I'm going to need more income in the future to feel like the same dollars as today because of the declining purchasing power in this inflationary environment but how does not having this buffer asset cause you to be at risk more because of inflation
2: mm-hmm. yeah so inflation it has a permanent impact because like if prices are up 8% this year then even if inflation comes back down i'm still kind of working from this permanent base of 8% higher uh, expenditure needs if my spending is keep growing with inflation. So inflation is creating more risk for the financial plan because I consider it more of a, it's a spending shock. It's a situation where people have to spend more than they anticipated. And that's if I anticipated in my planning, then inflation would be two or 3%. And now I'm getting hit by 8% inflation. It's requiring me to spend more to meet my retirement budget. And that's, putting more pressure on the financial plan because it's making, harder, making it harder for my assets to keep pace and to provide that level of spending. And we, when we think about like short-term uh, bonds and treasury bills and so forth is the quote-unquote risk-free asset when we're pre-retirement. But if I have these assets that are only yielding between zero and 1%, inflation is 8%, I'm dramatically lagging behind inflation. My assets are not growing to even keep pace with inflation. And that's making it all the more difficult to fund a retirement spending need that may be growing with inflation.
1: And that makes it even less viable of an option to say, well, just take less than four percent, let's take 2.8% this year, or let's take only 1% this year, when that those dollars are feeling like less. And I think there was a you know, if we worked out the numbers you had said in your in your white paper, which we'll link to again in this show, we also linked to last time about 100 episodes ago, so probably about two years ago on the show, uh, you said the declining purchasing power due to inflation means that about 60% of today's purchasing power is what you'll you'll have in 25 years. Meaning if you plan to retire and use your assets in 25 years, the dollar that you're taking out then is only going to feel like 60 cents at that time. And if we work that sp- that timeline out about 60 years. This is with normal inflation, by the way.
2: Right. That's, that sounds like a 2% inflation assumption. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, and then in about 60 years, that's uh, about 30% of the purchasing power, meaning $1 is about 30 cents in 60 years, which means if you want to live a certain lifestyle, you're going to need a lot more cash to do it than what you're using today, considering that timeline. And it just makes it even harder if you're having the Uh, low stock market Mm -hmm. returns and that volatility that's impacting your portfolio during retirement.
2: Yeah, just your assets are not keeping up with inflation. And that's so short term, like holding cash or savings accounts or CDs, that's none of that's going to keep up with inflation. And that's where you lose that purchasing power over time. And so a retirement strategy in part, and not everyone's spending will need to grow with inflation throughout retirement. And at least social security is inflation adjusted. So they're getting some protection there. But no, know it's certainly the case that over a long retirement with inflation, it makes it more difficult if somebody's only using bonds, who's not taking on a, a strategy that has at least some chance to keep up with inflation. And that's where either the stock market or using insurance to cover spending to allow other investments to then be in the stock market. Can give a better opportunity for for having the long term potential for asset growth that can at least keep pace with inflation.
3: So, Doctor, let me let me try to be a little vulnerable here in the way I talk about this with some of my clients because I think it's shocking that if you have a twenty percent drop in your portfolio, people think, well, then I'll just if I just make twenty percent the next year, then I'm back to zero, and they don't realize that. You're not because you're 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 earning twenty percent on a lower <clears throat> a lower asset. So, mm-hmm. example, hundred thousand dollars. You lose 20 percent. You're down now you have eighty thousand dollars. If you then make twenty percent in your portfolio the next year, you think you'd be back to zero, but you're actually on the lower asset, so you're only back to ninety six thousand dollars. So you actually lost four percent. And then, of course, if you took four percent off of that lower asset that year then you're really only around 92800 92, ninety two eight hundred or something like that. So that's, that is the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that even though you lose 20, you gain 20, normally you think over those two years, I'm back at zero. But you're not because you're gaining on a lower asset. So that's a concept I think our listeners really have to understand is the power of drawing money from an asset that's down. So if you do have a buffer account, that you can let the portfolio recover from it, it, it'll recover a little bit more easily. So would you say that's a fair um, co- way to explain that concept?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a really important point that over time, the growth rate is not equal to just the average return over time. And, and your example, right, if, if the portfolio's down 20%, so you go from 100,000 down to 80,000, you would need to then have a 25% gain to get back to where you started and if you're furthermore spending from the portfolio that's even further ramping up the gains that you would need to offset so that you can get back to your initial portfolio value and so growth rates are less and i think that's there's a popular radio host who talks about 12 percent stock market returns but he's completely confusing this point that's not a growth rate over time, that's a historical, I take all the historical stock returns and divide by the number of years, I get 12% on the S&P 500. But if I'm going to invest in the S&P 500, the historical growth rate is more like 10%, not 12%. But that's, and then if I wanna know about purchasing power, I'd have to extract inflation out of that, then I'm getting down to around six and a half or 7% in terms of inflation, in terms of keeping the same purchasing power. And that's then yeah. just the average. <laughs> so you can't necessarily rely on an average over a short period of time because market volatility and risk is there. And that's if the timing of your retirement is such that you retire and then markets start going down for a while, that's back to the this, this sequence risk is even if the market recovers, if you're spending from your portfolio, it becomes a lot more difficult for your portfolio to recover. And it's exactly this point that you're talking about
3: yeah it's a sequence of return risk i think is frankly i think it's one of the things that most advisors don't educate their clients on they they're only looking at that average return and they mm-hmm. somehow find comfort in that and and i don't think that's very comfortable frankly let's let's talk a little bit also about in your research when you have a, a couple that they can actually afford to spend more during their retirement years if they have a way to fill the bucket of assets back up in a well-designed life insurance product because they, the surviving spouse then can feel good about the assets being filled back up upon the death of the other spouse. So that means then they can actually spend more along the way and have a more fruitful retirement. So what does your research show on that?
2: right so and the issue is like if if anyone's worked with some financial planning software that reports a probability of success something like that and maybe was told build a financial plan that will work 90% of the time what people may not realize about that is that is assuming a low rate of return because if you're doing it investments only that return has to be low enough that 90% of the time the realized return experience will be better, that you would actually get a higher return and you have money left over. So that sort of investments approach forces people to spend less to have a high probability of success. Mm -hmm. And that's where, like, to the point you're making, using insurance as part of the retirement plan, you have contractual protections behind what you're doing. You're not having to be overly conservative and not just about market returns, but about my longevity forcing me to spend less to make sure I don't outlive my money. And and so the scenario you described specifically was we have a couple. They're looking to support a retirement income goal throughout their retirement. Uh, They could consider a joint life annuity, or they could consider a single life annuity on one of the individuals that's going to pay quite a bit more than joint life. Having a joint life annuity is another way to effectively incorporate life insurance, but if they had life insurance on that individual, they could go ahead and get the single life annuity, get a much higher payment from that, knowing that the life insurance is backing that up. And then, if something happens to that individual and they say they bought an annuity that was equal to the, the premium they paid was equal to the death benefit of the life insurance, they now have the death benefit of the life insurance replacing that asset to the household. And so, if the spouse outlived that person, the spouse could then consider Do I want to then purchase a single life annuity myself at that point? If that individual outlived, it's just then the life insurance becomes that asset as part of the legacy for the household. But having that sort of integrated approach to cover spending through insurance, not with all the assets. I think another common like, misconception people have is whenever we talk about an annuity or an insurance or something, it's an all or nothing type of decision. And that's not the situation here. It's, let's cover spending through insurance, and then that can free up some discretion. So with some of our remaining assets, we might feel more comfortable investing them in the stock market, which ultimately could give us a much better retirement outcome in terms of getting growth through the stocks, not being exposed to the sequence risk because we're covering spending through the insurance, having the life insurance to back up the annuity, uh, being able to more effectively meet spending goals, and having a much higher chance to leave a larger legacy at the end as well through this sort of integrated strategy with insurance and investments.
3: And then effectively what happens is your your annuity or your life insurance becomes your bond portfolio. Um,
2: That's how and, I like uh, to to frame it always, that it's thinking in terms of annuities and life insurance, cash value are both part of my bond holdings and, and so, Bond mutual funds are not a very effective retirement income tool. <laughs> but if I no. can have less bond mutual funds and have more fixed income through insurance or more bonds through insurance, that, that's the way to think about it. Not necessarily having to sell my stock investments to buy insurance, but replacing my bond investments with insurance. That's the way that can help create these better, more effective retirement plans.
3: That's the thing that opened up my eyes from your research is then you actually can... If you take care of of your basic spending needs, then you can actually have your equity portfolio be a more aggressive portfolio and thus have a situation where you probably won't outlive your money, or you can have even a greater income stream in retirement that you can enjoy. And that's what I, when I read your paper and when I saw you talk in, in Colorado Springs, I thought. This is this is just a great thing that really if you're a if you're a a true investment advisor, a true fiduciary, you really need to take all these things in consideration and not just a 60-40 portfolio where you buy, hold, and hope that you know it works out at the end.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a pure investment context, bonds are usually there's this uh, group called asset dedication. I really like their analogy. It's just bonds are stock light. They're they're part of the diversified portfolio their only job is to reduce the volatility of the portfolio, but they're still volatile, just like stocks are. Long-term bonds can be just as volatile as stocks. But So when you're thinking about retirement income, where you're trying to fund spending needs, that's where instead of using bonds as just a less volatile version of stocks, why don't we use bonds to actually fund retirement spending needs? And then being able to get that risk-pooling aspect through insurance, so it's bonds plus risk-pooling, that can be a more effective way to fund the spending needs. That then creates risk capacity, which is just this idea. If I have my spending covered, I can take on more market risk because my lifestyle is not dependent on getting high market returns. I can weather a stock market downturn. I can panic, Not, not panic, I can stay the course because my retirement isn't dependent and getting the high stock returns. And then I really have more opportunity to benefit from stocks for the long run because they're not essential to meeting my retirement spending because I have insurance to do that. And that's where by being able to leave my stocks alone, then I'll have more later in retirement or I can help fund more legacy that way. It's just, there's a lot more flexibility for how to approach not having to rely on this volatile investment to fund my basic retirement spending because insurance is playing that role. And so I, not everyone will feel more comfortable, but you have the capacity to then feel more comfortable with stock investments because they're not essential to meeting your retirement spending. need. I think that couldn't have been
1: stated better. I, I, Bruce, I just, I really want to highlight this for someone listening. I think we've probably said it about six different ways. And I was going to point it out even before you did, Bruce. And I'm so thankful that this particular concept is becoming very um, prominent on this show. When you have security and guarantees, you can do more because you're not dependent on the performance of that investment as much as if you didn't have the guarantees. It's like if you didn't have a a foundation, then you're going to feel a lot more unstable in building the house. But when you do have a strong, solid foundation, you know that the ground beneath your feet is solid and you're depending on that for income and for some of the things that you know that you're going to need, then you can build a much taller um, skyscraper even, if you will, because you have the, the solid ground. So, so,
3: the, so, so, so Wade, um, put your PhD in economics hat on. And I know, I know uh, this is probably not a fair uh, question right now, but I'd like to hear your you know, there's some people that are saying because of the, the way the stock market actually went up because of the amount of money that was pumped into the system, that really until we get back into normal economic viability, um, that we're, we could have another potential 2000s where the, where the returns in the 2000s were basically flat. Do you have any opinion on that for the next 10 years on, on uh, looking at stock market returns?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. Ultimately, we don't know what the markets are going to do. And with this high market valuation environment, for a long time, that type of modeling would predict lower stock returns, which we've somehow managed to avoid for for quite a while at this point. But the way I approach it is I'm I'm still not afraid of stocks. I am further away from my retirement date as well, though, to be clear. But uh, I'm not going to assume Stocks are going to grow at their historical average numbers. I'm going to build a financial plan where I'm assuming a much lower rate of return on, on the stock investment. Like in my own personal financial planning, I'm just assuming a long-term growth rate of 4.25%. So, and that's including the inflation. That's not the real number. And I'm going to have to modify because the inflation was 2% of that, but it should probably be higher now. (laughs) But anyway, it's not to necessarily be scared away from stocks, but to certainly make sure your plan can work. If stocks have a lower return in the future, then you might want to pick just by looking at their historical average numbers. And that's just a function of the valuation in the stock market and how Based on historical performance, when stock market valuations have been high, subsequently stock market returns have been lower and even close to zero in some cases. So that's how I would approach it. Not that I'm going to try to time the market and abandon stocks, but I'm just going to work from the assumption that stocks will provide a lower return. And so I can't rely on, on 7 or 8% type returns for my financial plan.
3: Well, that makes me feel good because I've been modeling out 4% with a with a two percent uh, inflation, yeah, uh, probably, I probably, yeah, I, I probably need to, in, you know, bump that in long term inflation up a little bit. But uh, yeah, it, I I think people can sleep better at night knowing that you're not presuming, you know, the upper upper parts of the market that were there historically at seven or eight percent, where a lot of financial advisors have historically modeled. So getting that down, I think right now is probably a a wise thing to do.
1: You know, from here, we have a few minutes left uh, before we have to wrap up the show. And what I would like for you to do is just kind of talk from your perspective on the difference between what many people would say, buy term and invest the difference versus having whole life. And the really the advantages that you get from having whole life. And I want to preface this a little bit by the idea that I think this stems from the whole concept that life insurance is about a need only. And if my need is to pay for a mortgage, if I die early and my income is no longer being provided to the household, then there needs to be something to fill that gap, which is usually term insurance. And the need for that type of Concept about life insurance at all is over when I stop earning an income or when I slow down and stop having as much income coming into the household based on my work and my career. So I think a lot of times that this idea can be, well, if I just get term insurance, there's a lower cost of that insurance. My need expires at age 65 and I've paid less for this insurance product I'm over 65 now, I'm in retirement, I no longer have a need. And I've paid little to get that. And so I was able to invest more of my dollars. Whereas you're saying, hey, there's tremendous advantage in having whole life insurance, because when you have it in retirement, you have this ability to have a volatility buffer, this asset can act as your legacy, you can do so much more when you have the whole life insurance, But I can hear somebody saying, yeah, but didn't my need expire already for life insurance? And yeah, but if I did the whole life insurance, from that perspective, I paid way more to get the life insurance. So now I had way less money to put into investments. What would you say to the person asking those specific questions? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I did because I'm from the investments world. I, I was skeptical at first. And when I first started looking at it, there was some naive analysis out there of basically just introducing an extra life insurance policy at retirement. And I was like, well, hold on a second. If you're funding permanent life insurance, the premiums will be higher. You won't have as much in your investments. So that's why when I did this research, I backed up and and looked at different versions of the white paper, like 35-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old. But at that point in their life, They realize they do need life insurance for the traditional reasons we hear about to provide protection to the family to replace their salary if something happens to that individual. And so then the question they're asking themselves is should I buy term and invest a difference to provide that protection to my family? Or should I use permanent life insurance to provide that protection to my family, but to also be thinking ahead to retirement? And if I could then use that in different ways in retirement. And so permanent life insurance, the premiums are much higher. And by doing it this way, I'm able to back up and say, indeed, you're not going to have as much in your investments if you're using permanent life insurance. So when you get to retirement now, if you bought term and invest a difference, you have more investment assets, but you don't have any insurance at that point. And then you're just vulnerable to, okay, if I want my plan to work with a 90% success rate, I can't spend very much if markets do well, I just end up leaving a huge legacy at the end and so on uh, versus I now have permanent life insurance. I could use that as a volatility buffer, and that will allow me to spend at a much higher level from my investments because it creates a synergy to help protect my portfolio in a market downturn. Or I could simply use the life insurance to support purchasing an annuity that will then provide a replacement for that single life on that single individual uh, to get a much higher level of spending throughout retirement. Uh, There's a lot of different options. And the the simulations, it's if the stock stock market does very well, like at the very top end of the distribution, the investment's only strategy. It doesn't necessarily come out ahead because you're going to be spending less throughout retirement, but you might leave a much larger legacy at the end. But all the strategies include a role for stock investments. So it's not, it's like maybe (laughs) like in in when the stock market is really well, investments only, you're spending less on retirement, but then you leave $15 million of legacy versus with an integrated strategy with insurance, you might only leave $12 million of legacy. But that's only for a small portion of the possible outcomes when markets do very well. For the majority of cases, and in particular when markets don't do as well, which is what we want to protect against you're spending less throughout retirement with the investments only approach and you're leaving a larger legacy at the end as well that using insurance as part of the planning process not only lets you spend more and enjoy more in retirement but also more often than not leave behind a larger net legacy at the end through and it's through the insurance aspects of it but it's also through the tax advantages of uh, especially with life insurance structuring to not have it it's proceeds from a loan. So it's not going into adjusted gross income. It's not impacting your tax bills. It's not impacting the taxes you pay on social security benefits. It's not impacting the Medicare premium surcharges that higher income people need to pay and so forth. Uh, Plus the, just so it's the tax advantages, plus the insurance risk pooling advantages that work together to help provide that better retirement outcome. In the majority of cases, and more importantly, in the cases where you need that protection because markets are not doing as well.
1: I think that's really valuable for someone to hear, especially because of the pervasive thinking about life insurance. And you know, we are often talking about whole life insurance from the vantage point of infinite banking and from a position of saying, here is a wonderful place to store cash. You have capital that you're able to access and borrow against for purchasing an additional investment or for your emergency fund, or as we talk about your emergency and opportunity fund as well. But I love to hear from the person who's looking ahead towards retirement, what specifically is the best um, way of thinking about whole life insurance as a asset and as a benefit to your planning that really makes things do better. And so I love your white paper. I actually don't think I have the name of it right here. Um, I do. Optimizing retirement. Oh, yeah.
3: Okay. That one. Well, I have the one that I was referring to as integrating whole life insurance into retirement income planning. And yeah, there's the been I, multiple I, versions I, of it. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I love that one. One of the, one of the, uh, things way that I, I want to get your perspective on is that when a person is really trying to make a decision financially they also have an emotional aspect of that particular decision. And that's where you keep, you keep referring to it, I think, as a risk analysis, but it's, it's the person's own risk analysis, which is an emotional part of that. And so that, how, do you, how do you advise people and families or, you, or the people that you teach to take that emotional piece into the – because your research is so based upon the math and the Monte Carlo simulations Mm-hmm. But when, you know, I was at the, the Jackson National thing yesterday and they said a 90% chance of, of it being successful. Well, there's, there's people with mindsets that said, well, that's great. 90% is great. And other people are saying, you mean I'm going to fail 10% of the time? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so how do you advise the people that, uh, educationally, you know, look at your stuff and, and you teach, how do you advise them on the emotional aspect of all this?
2: Well, that's actually been a big area of research focus for me over the last couple of years with this now this idea of the retirement income style awareness, where we really try to understand what sort of trade-offs are involved in retirement, and then how might people make a, a preference for that. And ultimately, this is work I did with Alex Marguia, where we found there are these two primary factors for retirement. And, and the one is, Am I comfortable with relying on market growth to fund my retirement? We call that probability-based. Or would I prefer contractual protections to help support spending, at least for my essential spending in retirement? We call that safety first. And then the other primary factor is, which surprised me, I wouldn't really have predicted this one, but it was optionality versus commitment. Do I want to keep my options open as much as possible to make changes in the future? or am I comfortable committing to a strategy that I know will solve for a lifetime need? Mm. And the really fascinating part of this research was when you mix these two factors. So if you're probability based and optionality oriented, that is describing the the total return diversified investments only type of an approach. I'm comfortable with the markets and I don't wanna commit to anything. I wanna keep my options open as much as possible. Uh, alternatively, a safety first commitment orientation, I want contractual protections and I'm comfortable committing to a strategy. That's much more the world of integrating insurance with investments. And what we ultimately found is that this has now been done as as a nationally representative study of 2,800 Americans. About a third of the population seems to be comfortable with the uh, investing only type of an approach even though the consumer media almost always focuses on that as being really the only viable approach to retirement. So I, it, at this point, I'm, I'm purely agnostic on this. For the third of Americans who prefer an investments-only strategy, I'm fine with <laughs> doing that. Uh, but ultimately, two-thirds of Americans are looking for something different. And that's where I think it's very important to make sure, or to make clear that there are different options. And the math is certainly behind the integrated strategy with insurance and investments. It's, but it's still, it's behaviorally not going to be for everyone. But for the people who it is appropriate for, yes, the math supports it. Plus, if it helps you to sleep better at night and, and helps you have a more enjoyable retirement, then it's a completely viable strategy that people need to understand is available to them. And so I really now view retirement income, the first step of building a retirement plan is to start thinking about what sort of retirement style do I have? What kind of basic approach do I want to use towards building my retirement income stream? And again, for the third of Americans who want to be investments only, go ahead. (laughs) But for the other two thirds, there are viable and arguably mathematically better ways to build a retirement income plan, than an investments only approach. Have, have you written a paper on this um, retirement style? Uh-huh. Uh huh. We've got several research studies on it now, and actually, in the other big uh, pandemic project of mine, was writing a new book, "The Retirement Planning Guidebook," which is a, a comprehensive look at all the different aspects of a building a retirement plan. Chapter one is about these retirement income styles, and on page fifteen of the book, there's a link if people would like to actually. Uh, take this questionnaire and, and get an understanding about their retirement style and what kind of then what kind of retirement strategy might resonate best with them in terms of the way their their personality is designed for how they want to approach uh, a retirement income plan. I, I think
3: it's very important for people to understand their personality because if they don't, then there's I think there's resentment that that sets in later on. The, mm-hmm. the you know you're hiring an advisor. That's that's trying to take in all these things, but I've found from my experiences some advisors uh really don't take into the retirement style and say, "Oh, don't worry about that, you know I've got it taken care of. just don't worry about it. look at the numbers it's it's going to work out and then and then the other ones say, well just do just do whatever we'll just do whatever you want, you know you whatever you want we'll say and then of course you're not advising them because that's your part, your that's your your role that's why you're getting paid to protect people from themselves um and so it, it really i i try to be in the middle ground and i and our our firm tries to be in the middle ground we try to be somewhat you know uh, evidence based but also take the retirement styles into consideration and be a true advisor um and that's where the, the sleep at night thing i think and you avoid the resentment in the future or constantly going over why you're doing something
2: right uh, and not just the resentment but also the risk of abandoning the plan when there's market volatility which is like for example bill bengen he's now talking about market timing and things is justifying why he's uh, gotten out of the stock market but the market timing does not have academic support behind it and ultimately i'm just concerned He's the, the poster child of the investments only approach to retirement. And I'm guessing if he took the retirement income style awareness, he may not be a total return style that he may, the strategy he created may not be the right strategy for him. And that's manifested through the fact that he's abandoned it when markets got volatile.
3: Mm. I, I always tell people you have, in, that, in a timing situation, you have to be right three times. You have to know when to get into the market, you have to know when to get out of the market, and then you have to know when to get into the market again. If you're confident that you are gonna be correct all three times, and that's only, in, that's only in the one time you're timing the market, then, then several years later you're gonna to try to time it again. You have to be in the same situation again. <laughs> the, the Research shows, we don't have time to talk about this, but, and I don't know if you've actually done the research, but the research I've written is that timing the market just doesn't work unless you're in that outlier where the, there's a luck component into that situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no that that research has all been established since the 1960s, so it's not yeah. even really an it's open research questions. question by the time I came I along.
3: But yet, it, but yet it still, but it, yet it still happens on a daily basis. Not only with the the consumer, the public, and now that we have all these self, not self-directed, but um, investor-directed uh, accounts that they can get in and just direct their own brokerage account. They don't have somebody in their ear telling them, stop trying to t- time the market, which brings in even more volatility into the market. But I still see financial advisors who, who do not stick to the strategy that they agreed on and said, okay, yeah, I think I'm smarter than the market and I'm going to time the market for you. Mm-hmm.
1: There's so much more. Uh, we are going to be having you back on the show. Um, we're going to be talking about reverse mortgages and that's probably in about a month or so. So if you're listening today, w- Dr. Wade Fow will be back. Um, please hold your questions or send them to us in advance. You can email us at hello at the money advantage with questions for him specifically. Um, but I think the big picture that anyone can take from this conversation is First, you need to know what are your specific goals. Then you need to be working with an advisor that understands and respects and can help you with your specific goals. Do the most with your money so that you have the most, um, the best outcome in the widest range of circumstances. And that often involves some form of certainty. And so, I just I really want to thank you, Dr. Wade, for doing so much research and substantiation and really modeling what these uh, financial. Um, simulations work out to and how we can be in the best position to have guarantees to not just work out in 92% of the time or 90% of the time or have to just reduce income to a place that it doesn't even make viable sense. So thank you very much for uh, just your passion to continue uh, this whole uh, pushing forward, this whole field of retirement planning and making it better for people who have real lives with real income needs and real expenses in those later years. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.
2: It's been a pleasure.
1: You've also, um, just real quick, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, find out more, get your book, where do they go? I believe that is um, retirementresearcher.com. Is that correct?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my home base, retirementresearcher.com. And, and the retirement planning guidebook uh, is easy to find at Amazon. It's been showing up as the first listing at once you get through all the sponsored things, the first organic search listing for exactly. retirement or retirement planning. You'll you'll see the retirement planning guidebook.
1: Mm, that's awesome. Well, that's a, an accomplishment for you as an author. So congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Wade Fau. If you are looking him up, that's P F A U. Is that correct?
2: Mm-hmm, that's right.
1: All right. Thank you so much for listening today. And you can find us at themoneyadvantage.com if you have questions, feedback, comments that you want to share with us, or you want to dig into your specific situation, you can book an appointment with our advisors at themoneyadvantage.com. And please remember in closing, success leaves clues. So follow, model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business that you love.